It's currently seven degrees warmer in Milwaukee than Miami Beach right now. That's crazy. That is crazy, yeah. So the Celtics helped you out. Yeah, no, the Celtics helped me out, that's for sure. We're, we're going to start it formal right now. Welcome to the Pro Basketball Talk podcast. I'm Dan Feldman here with Jared Weiss of The Athletic, who is thrilled to be in Milwaukee. Uh, Milwaukee takes a lot of grief. Milwaukee's a good city, especially this time of year. But I'm really glad to have Jared on because I want to talk uh, about the Celtics and a lot of uh, Celtics tangential things. Jared covers the Celtics for The Athletic. I don't know if I said that yet. Um, let's start talking about the actual Celtics in a great playoff series with the Bucs. This has been my favorite series of the playoffs. Uh, I think the defense has been outstanding by both teams. Uh, incredible. Oh, yeah. And the fact that the teams are scoring so well is really a credit to their offenses. Because to, when I'm watching this lockdown defense, I'm thinking like lesser teams are, would just not score. And, and this was a fairly lower scoring series. Uh, but the fact that it's so high scoring, I've been impressed by the offense. To you, what do you think is the difference in the series? Why is Milwaukee up 3-2 as opposed to uh, the Celtics, who look like the better team coming into the series once we knew Chris Middleton was out? Uh, why are the Celtics trailing now? Degree of difficulty in shot-making, Giannis. It's, I think it's just Giannis. I, I hate oversimplifying things. Oh, I might even with... oversimplify it even more. But oh, please I, do. I, well, I don't want to interrupt you, but I... And this is overlapping with Giannis. And I, I, I'm with you. I hate to oversimplify it like this, but part of me is just like the will of a champion. Like, yeah, and a lot yeah. of this is Giannis, and they are just finding ways to win to me. Yeah. it's So, I mean, the reason why the series is the way it is is because of the will of the champion. Something happened in crunch time in game five. It's really as simple as that. Um, well, it's not, but that's, that's I think that that's like a clear place to start it with is that like in, in that game, the fourth quarter, and what's really cool is the last three games of the series have been fourth quarter comebacks that have just been unbelievable. And it keeps getting more and more unbelievable. And um, like Milwaukee just, they, they hit some insane shots like Giannis and Drew hitting both of those threes. I'm not sure which was harder. Drew's contested three or Giannis's wide open three. I feel like Giannis's <laughs> wide open three was harder, but he, but he hit it. And like, you know, it's funny. I watched the replay like 10 times to figure out what they could have done differently. But like Grant Williams, held up on his closeout because that's what you do on Giannis. You don't hard close out the Giannis. You soft, you don't just soft close out the Giannis where you like you land in front of him. Like you have to stay back. So he did what he had to do. He let him have the shot that they wanted to take and he hit it. And it's incredible. And it's funny how Giannis had so many insane buckets. Like he pulled off like the Dr. J wraparound reverse. He like, he flew, he flew through great Al Horford defense multiple times in that game. And yet it's a wide open uncontested three, essentially. That's going to be his greatest shot of this, of the series. Um, but so the Celtics just, they ran such good offense the entire night. They shot poorly and like Jason Tatum missing wide open threes, like he was doing in the first half of the season. That was a huge part of this game was that like the way that the Celtics were playing where he was getting wide open threes on the honest and drop coverage over and over again in the first half. If he just shot, if he if he hit like forty percent of those as opposed to like twenty percent of those, the, the, this would be a this could have been like a blowout basically, like a twenty point blowout where Milwaukee's so far back they never really mount that comeback. But he missed those. Celtics shot poorly. Grant Williams has been not shooting shooting well after he was really great earlier in the series, and suddenly like the Celtics. I'm sorry. The point of that was that the Celtics were running really good offense for the first three quarters. Even in the early fourth quarter, it was really good. And then they went small, and they went small around like the seven-half-minute mark where they took out Grant and put Derek White in. And Derek White was, has been playing really well for these past three games. Ever since he had the 0-7 game, he's been playing really well. And even though he's playing well, 
they brought that lineup out there. That lineup is supposed to churn ball movement. That lineup is supposed to drive and kick, drive and kick, drive and kick till they get a wide open three. And instead, they just went really early into mismatch hunting, isolation. And the worst part of it was, I wrote about this on The Athletic, like, they weren't hunting George Hill for Tatum. It was like Tatum Tatum got Giannis screened onto him and still went ISO anyway. Like it, it was just like they – I think, honestly, maybe they were so confident in what they were doing in the fourth quarter of the few games before that that they thought they could just do it again no matter what was in front of them. And Tatum especially kind of just like sat back and got com- a little comfortable and took some mediocre shots. And some of those did go in for him last game, and he was the big closer for them with that huge – 10 points uh, little run that he had after Horford had this crazy run in game four. Um, but like th- they just had bad looks over and over again over the course of the middle of that fourth quarter. And then, you know, I thought they did pretty well in the very end of the game, but Milwaukee just hit some amazing shots and Milwaukee already has so much momentum going at that point that just the little mistakes that the Celtics made in, on like the in-between stuff with like the 50, 50 balls and all that kind of stuff. Like that's what did them in. Yeah, it does get tougher late. I mean, the the Bucks went with with Bobby Portis. I think uh, the Bucks deserve some credit there. Um, I thought the Celtics in the last game uh, really exploited Grayson Allen. I thought George Hill w- was awful defensively. He's not always awful defensively. In the last game, I, I thought he was uh, dreadful. And, and so you take those two guys out of the the game, it's harder to to find somebody to attack when Portis is out there, when Pat Connaughton's out there. Those guys. Hold up, and that's that's why I don't like going to the just real simple like will of a champion. But if you can put out their five tough-minded guys and Giannis, super talented Giannis, and Drew Mills is or excuse me, Drew Holiday is pretty good too. Uh, the, the, I don't know. It just seems like the Bucks find a way. What chances do you give the Celtics of winning Game Six in Milwaukee, uh, and, and let alone a, a Game Seven? Obviously, that would be in Boston. Uh, but the the Bucks last year showed against the Nets they can go on the road and win a game seven. Yeah, this happens all the time. I mean, I remember the the best performance I've ever seen in my life was LeBron in Game Six of the mm-hmm. 2012 Eastern Conference Finals. Everybody, everyone in basketball remembers that game. It was the scariest performance you've ever seen. It was LeBron's metamorphosis into the you know into the goat, and so that is. I don't think that's even necessary for Boston because of how good of a team they are. But that was like a good reminder that. You can come out and just like shock the team in their house in game six and then it just hit them so hard that they just kind of like lose a little bit of that edge in game seven. You remember the funny thing is that LeBron game was not the closeout game. They still had to go back to Miami for game seven. And there was just something about the Celtics where they just didn't have that edge anymore. And Miami just kind of like very steadily but narrowly beat them. And Boston can pull that off. It's probably going to be on Tatum to do it because Jalen's had a really good series. Jalen has been kind of their engine throughout, you know, throughout the game. And then they need Tatum to do the closing, especially in half court when things slow down. And, you know, Jalen, I think, has done most of what they need him to do offensively in this series. And he's been very, very impressive. And Tatum just has shot the ball really poorly. It's just it has not been a good series for Tatum. And even the nights where he's putting up big numbers, it doesn't – even the nights where he's putting up big scoring numbers – and on poor shooting, it doesn't feel the same as it does with Giannis, even if the numbers are pretty comparable. And especially because like Giannis is still doing it on his end while Tatum is doing it. It's not as lopsided as it was before. But so you know, they, they need Tatum to just have this night where all of his shots are hitting throughout the game. And he needs to have this ferocity level that he hasn't quite shown yet. And also, like his defense was really bad in the fourth quarter. 
a huge part of the a, a huge part of them losing was he both him and Jalen Brown, who like I get it, they retired. We've been talking about how Giannis and Drew have been tired late in games. A lot a lot of people have been talking about that. Um and that cost Milwaukee in those games back in Milwaukee. Like Tatum and, and Jalen looked a little bit I mean, they just did, they lost that edge defensively in the fourth quarter. And a lot of the offensive rebounds that boss that uh Milwaukee got, especially Bobby Portis got, were that Tatum just didn't hit the box out. He watched. And the Celtics weren't in the double big lineup anymore. They went small. So Tatum was the one responsible for those rebounds and for the low man protection. And he did a really bad job with it at the end of the game. And so yeah, like that, they just have. That's like the heart of the champion stuff. Like Giannis, you see Giannis keeled over when he's out of breath because he's still going balls to the wall in those moments, and we just don't quite see that in the same way from the Boston superstars. I'm not assuming the Celtics are going to lose, but if the Celtics lose, if this is where it ends, if it's a second round loss to a very good team, but. It- very good team with without it, its second or third best player. However, you want to split Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, uh, both of them, you know th- that borderline star range. But without Chris Middleton, how how is the Celtics season going to be viewed? How should it be viewed? Um, I think it should be viewed very highly. Um, it's weird because I, I think that if the if the Bucks do win the series, it's less about the season and more about just like Tatum and Brown's growth process and them trying to become superstars. As I think at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, Giannis has Giannis every single game has felt like he has made a massive impact. Even the nights where he wasn't playing well and the resources it took to slow him down were just so dramatic while Tatum and Brown, like Brown, I think has been very consistently good. Tatum has been pretty up and down, but they just don't drain the resources of the opponent in the same level that Giannis does. And so like, that's a, Sorry, I just saw somebody almost get run over. Um, so the, they're okay, though. Is everybody okay? Uh, we, we can't yeah, just leave fine. everybody hanging with that. <laughs> so I said almost get run over. Yeah, got, a guy decided to bike through a uh, major intersection while a car was turning left. Uh, that was not a smart idea. Let's say he's wearing a helmet, though. Good for him. The things you see out of your hotel window in Milwaukee, <laughs> it's always fun. So point is, is like I, I think that Stevens and Udoka have done a great job of building the identity, a very clear identity investing in now and maximizing it. And I think it worked really well. And I think the thing that has been really interesting is that I don't think the Celtics lack of shooting talent, um, or I guess like concerns about shooting talent has been their biggest issue or is going to be the reason why they don't win. If they lose this series, I don't really think it's that. Um, I think it's more about just getting away from their offensive identity in the biggest moments um, and not being able being able, I think it's that this team has oftentimes been slow to react when things aren't working offensively this year. And that was why they had those huge collapses early in the season. Like they just like kept, they kept doing the thing that wasn't working and they just didn't really adapt and they were too slow to break out of it. And Tatum and Brown just aren't quite dynamic enough players to be able to do that in the same way that like Giannis can or Giannis, you can use them in any type of way, essentially. You know, you could still use him downhill from the perimeter because he could break through. You know, they're, they're not quite at that level. Um, and so I think that, like, I'm going to be looking at this team and being like, I think that they did a great job building what's around it. And, like, they hit on Horford. Like, Horford has been just a massive home run move for them. It's incredible to see him play off alling it again. Uh, Derek White, you know, they invested a lot long-term into him. Uh, but he has been very good. He's he's been like a really really good six man. But it's it's hard to tell if it was you know if the value of that deal was right. But like you know the, the team the team is really really good. But it makes you worry like Tatum and Brown. 
are not taking as big of a leap in the postseason as you would hope for to think that this is like a team that you could really build a clear contender long term. But and, and that's only because Milwaukee doesn't have Middleton. And with the way the series is going, you just got to assume Milwaukee and Middleton, Milwaukee would be winning the series pretty easily. And the way they're playing now, I assume they would win the championship pretty, uh, or they would clearly win the championship if Middleton was healthy. And hopefully Middleton does get healthy if this team advances. The Suns are pretty good too. The Suns are pretty good too. No, it's and the clear. Warriors can be pretty good. Not last night. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, the NBA playoffs is going to be fun. It's not, it, it should not be a cakewalk. But the, the Bucks are just so goddamn good. So I, I have a curiosity about the Celtics that I've not been able to figure out all year. Um, Ime Adoka, was he a – I think he looks like a very good coach right now. Was he a very good coach all along who just needed time to to have everybody else catch on to his system and that was just part of the process? And he was still a very good coach at the beginning of the year when the, the Celtics were a little more uneven. But that – you know, they just had to go through those growing pains. Or did he improve as a coach as the year went on? And he wasn't doing a good enough job early in the year. And maybe that's a different answer offensively and defensively, or maybe it's the same answer. Yeah, it's it's definitely different on each side of the ball. Like his offense, uh, his offensive stuff took a lot of work uh, and improved a lot. I think the main the main reason they struggled was just he had to crack a bunch of eggs and make a new omelet thing. Like he had to take a very similar roster to what he inherited and break a bunch of bad habits and. That took him a while. And you know, credit to Jason Quick over at The Athletic. He was able to get Ime for like a Portland uh, angle story, but got a ton of stuff about the season in there and had some really interesting insights into how Ime took the job and then wasn't really living up to what he promised to be himself and to, you know, to like call guys out in a certain way and to really hold people accountable. And so he was trying to do it. In the press, and you know, we were blown away early in the year. We're, we, go, we go from Brad Stevens, who's the most political coach <laughs> out there and most down the middle and very you – know, he, like, he doesn't really ruffle feathers. He's very by the book. He's very, he's very smart in how he like, will cover up what he really means by you know, kind of couching some of the way he says it. While like Ime's like, yeah, that guy sucks. <laughs> and it is, it was an, it's an incredible breath of fresh air, and he continues to do it. Like the other night – or after after like, that was last night, right? Whatever night it was, um, he uh, he he mentioned that they felt like on that Giannis missed free throw that they felt like they could pull this off because Giannis is a bad free throw shooter. It's like who says <laughs> stuff like that? It's like what coach says that thing in that moment, especially after he's just lost? Like it's it's hilarious. The guy does not give a shit. It's incredible. And so uh, I think that he kind of had that all along publicly, but he still wasn't quite hammering it at home the way he needed to with the team. And he started getting, I think, a little bit more straightforward with the guys, a little bit harder on the guys, um, and was just finally willing to change stuff up. And like I remember after they had that huge meltdown at MSG on January 6th, and RJ Barrett hit that game-winning three over Tatum, and they had they blew that massive lead. I remember asking him like after the game, like, are you going to change your closing lineup that has Dennis Schroeder playing shooting guard, who's like the worst shooter in the NBA right now? Um, you know, are you going to lean into Grant Williams and Josh Richardson, who are shooting the ball and moving the ball? You're going to like finally just break things up, and that was a night where he kind of was like, yeah, I guess we probably will need to change it now, and he did. And they changed a lot of the, they changed like some of their playbook, they changed their defensive scheme up a little bit, and. Those things all had dramatic it had dramatic impact on the way that team played, and so credit to him. It took him a while to find his not find his voice, but find his authority. 
but he found it and it's worked. Yeah. Um, so I promise we won't talk just about the Celtics, but we can get into, like I called them, t- Celtics tangential things. Uh, Nets general manager Sean Marks talking about <laughs> Kyrie Irving. I knew exactly where we're going from the start of this. Yes. Uh, said he was asked very specifically about are you committing to Kyrie Irving long term? And he said, quote, we're looking for guys that want to come in here and be part of something bigger than themselves, play selfless, play team basketball, and be available. End quote. And he also added that that went for everybody on the team, not just Kyrie Irving. But he was asked directly about Kyrie Irving and said that. So Kyrie Irving. I feel like there's one person on the team that's an issue for. Otherwise, it's not a problem. You think there's only one? You see, you even forget Ben Simmons is on the team because he doesn't show up enough. Oh, my God. I forgot Ben Simmons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if only were an issue for only one person. Uh, having seen the Kyrie Irving experience up close in Boston. What do you think the Nets are getting themselves into as they go around toward their second contract with Kyrie Irving? Well, there's absolutely no way that you can give him a long-term extension right now. Um, he, I mean, you, he can be a free agent, right? He can opt out. Yeah. So and he I probably mean, will. You think he will? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the money is going to be there to, to opt out. Okay, I've I've been hearing that people expect him to opt in, but um, yeah, I mean, but not not source well enough to think it's like reportable. Just like you know, like that's that's speculation that I've been hearing. But I haven't really I haven't really quizzed people on that that much. So there's a lot more to find that out there. But I mean, it's just like right now, there's like what teams out there? I, there's always sign and trade possibilities for sure. We've definitely seen that. But like, is there really? Is there really a robust market for him out there right now? I, I feel like there isn't. Ooh, um, so, well, so let, let me give you the, the numbers uh, real quick. For next season, his player option salary is about $36.5 million. If he opts out, his max salary is uh, projected to be about $43 million. So, uh, Oh, so that's I not mean, enough to force that. Well, I, I, think, so, I mean, think that's why he'd opt out. Um, you know, if you can secure that extra money, why not? Right? It, it, he has the power in the situation, I think. It sounds like you, you view it otherwise, that he's not he doesn't necessarily have the power in the situation. I just I don't think there's a huge market for teams looking to give that you know a player of Kyrie's style and age in injury history a huge enough contract that like he has that there's like an open market bidding situation. Um wow. so I feel like I feel like we, we've got I, different views on this. I, yeah, I, I mean I I, I think it's not, a surefire max player. Um the only question is like, is it gonna be fully guaranteed? There might be some wiggle room yeah. on games played or things like that but if he's showing up and perform and that's his current contract too uh some of this was was some bonus shenanigans so they could fit in deandre jordan under the salary cap uh but you know I, i'd be surprised if he's getting less than the max by the time you account for incentives he meets all the incentives so I, think he's gonna get the max. I agree with you and the, i think the important point is that we have been pretty rapidly approaching an era of non-guaranteed deals in the NBA that are you're getting closer. It's funny. The NFL is moving towards full <laughs> guaranteeing more and more. The NBA is moving the opposite direction. And I think Kyrie, I, I, this is just like, I'm just getting a hunch. I haven't heard anyone tell me that they really think it's going to happen. I just feel like this is the moment where, especially with everything that's happened with Ben Simmons and just around the league and the CBA negotiations coming up, I feel like this is going to be the time where teams are going to try to give him a heavily incentivized deal. Where they're going to want to only give him like seventy percent guaranteed or something like that because he is so he has just proven to be so unreliable and so not willing to do what's best for the team. 
it, it, like at this point, it's like I don't know how. Like what I can't even think like what NBA franchises that aren't just like desperate to get some sort of superstar to sell tickets like a Sacramento Kings kind of situation. Like what team really thinks that they can bring in Kyrie and get him to buy into the program and support that team? Like it, it just hasn't worked yet. Even with KD there, it still doesn't work. It worked in Cleveland. Did it? They won a championship. Kyrie hit the biggest shot. Of course, yeah, it but worked. that was. That was before he really had standing, and that shot changed everything for his self-identity. I know, because he came to Boston, he talked about <laughs> that shot a thousand times. He talked about how he knows what it takes to win a championship, and then he did a horrible job trying to build a championship culture. He, it was a disaster in Boston, and it's been a disaster in Brooklyn. And you know, maybe it wouldn't have been if it weren't for the vaccine mandate, but... I don't really get that impression based on the way he's been conducting himself since then. So it's too bad. It's like Kyrie's Kyrie's amazing, but also Kyrie in that series got taken out of the series after the first game, and his defense was a huge liability for them. So it's like I don't know, like his throughout the regular season, the stuff he does, it's like oh yeah, he's clearly one of the best players in the NBA. But he's a he's a player that teams can game plan to limit, and it's been effective. All right, so you're even more down on Kyrie Irving than I am. So I'm, I'm going to pose the question to you like this. If you are the Nets, you have two choices. You don't get a third choice. Don't try and negotiate on this one. You have two choices. You can re-sign Kyrie Irving to a fully guaranteed five-year max deal. Or you cannot have him. He'll walk. He'll sign somewhere else. No sign and trade. No discount. <laughs> what are you choosing? I don't think wow. it's a hard choice. It's a hard think, choice, but I... Yeah. What do you choose? I, I think he's tradable as long as he's healthy. So, yeah, I probably would do the deal. Um, yeah, and he's too. and it's not like he sucks. Like, the guy's still incredible. It's just, yeah, it's just whew, committing five years. I think because you have KD locked up and you have Simmons locked up, I think it's fine to do it. Um, if I didn't have those guys locked up and my cap was still tied up and I like, did it, like I was building around Kyrie, it would be different. But, yeah, I think – I think at the end of the day, you would rather keep him than lose him, especially because he is definitely tradable. And that's and Kyrie knows that, and so yeah. he has the leverage to go get a max contract or close to it, or a max contract with the incentives. You know, I think Kyrie Irving might even be open to taking incentives because the way he talks, he seems to believe that he is available. If it's just something like games played, um, and it's a reasonable number to count for, like some minor injuries, like it, one of my. Uh, favorite use that word loosely uh things from Kyrie Irving this year was on media day he was talking about how important it was to show up every day well he wasn't there (laughs) he was at home doing it uh, online because he couldn't show up because of the vaccine mandate like Kyrie Irving I think in his own head believes he's more available more committed than he actually is than he actually shows he actually produces for the team so I could see him being open to to taking some type of incentive on games played. Well, the red flag for me, and tell me if I'm wrong, is I just like I, I was, you know, I'm busy with the Celtics beat, but like, did he, when they, they didn't have him at practice this year, right? Uh, like, it, it changed. Uh, so but it, like for it, a while, he, he agreed to go home and not be a distraction, basically. So and that's it, like, it, it was fairly early on that, uh, that they got, I don't know if it's an exemption or, it, I mean, the whole vaccine mandate was um, hastily implemented yeah. and applied. And so the Nets got <laughs> some interpretation where he could come to practice, where where the city was saying, no, that's okay. I don't know why. I don't know why, based on the vaccine mandate I read, why that would be okay in terms of like, A, and some, an unvaccinated person in the workplace. But for whatever reason, uh, the city said that was okay. But didn't didn't they send him home anyway? Am I well, mistaken? so the, the the choice they made at the beginning of the year was he could have played 
uh, road games, and the team said, ah, no thanks. You know, we'd rather have you for for ev- everything or nothing. And I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know whether the team truly thought, hey, this is what's best for the team, uh, you know, b- because we need this cohesion, or whether that was just a, a plan, a gambit to try and convince Kyrie to put some pressure on him. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but then it was very fairly early on in the season that it, that the team buckled and said, "No, you you can play the road games and practice and all of that." Yeah, it probably. I felt like it was a little bit later than we expected. Like it felt like he disappeared for a while. But I, either way, I mean, it was a bit. Yeah, it, it, it went on long enough that I felt like, wow, they really like he for, he for everything that he pretends to be and everything that you would expect out of a super max player or a max player and your team star. It's just hard to imagine the team would actually send the guy home because you would think that he would be such an important emotional impact and that at home games, he would still find a way to play an important role with the team and the, because he was allowed to be in the back, right? Like, it was uh, like, no, that was a fairly new development that he was, was even it? allowed to be in the arena. And that was shortly before he was just allowed to play. You know, to me, the big surprise is that Kevin Durant, uh, was on board. I can't imagine they would do this without Kevin Durant being on board. So I'm just assuming he was on board. Yeah, I assume that so, Kevin yeah. Durant was on board with with uh, not letting Kyrie Irving play road games, even while he was eligible early in the season. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I had to. I had to remember all the facts on the air through your guidance because it was such a crazy, <laughs> such a crazy situation. I just, I just remember the whole season witnessing it, being like, "How is the second star on this team?" Like, how are they compromising his role with the team like this? Like, that's – I just couldn't imagine that with, like, any other guy in the league. You would think that they would find some way to make the team feel like they need to be around as much as they can't have them around. And that was just not the case. And it lines up with just the way that Kyrie has always been. Yeah, incredible talent. Um, and and I'd just bet on the talent. Um, I hear you on the trade value. That gets complicated with KD, um, whether KD would approve that or not. I mean – Kevin Durant, every opportunity he was given to to say he was unhappy with Kyrie Irving, he never took it. He just said, you know, there are bigger things than basketball, and there are. Um, it it just seemed like yeah, but for how long? <laughs> for how long are there bigger things than basketball? Well, you know, KD yeah. can like lose a year, I guess, but can he really lose the rest of his career? Especially when KD like still has a chance to get himself into the go conversation if he gets a few more titles. But what's important to Kevin Durant? Um, you know, he does already have those championships. I think this would probably can't read Kevin Durant's mind. Can't know Kevin Durant can't even know how he'd react. But he's already won those championships. And you know what happened when he won those championships? Nobody gave him the credit. I'm sure he thought he would get. Uh, he didn't seem happy. At times he seemed happy. At times he did not. It was it was yeah. weird. It was confusing. He definitely didn't seem like overwhelmingly happy or, or clearly happy, which is something. Um, and everybody was saying, oh, you know, you didn't really earn these the right way. So how how much is Kevin Durant going to bust his tail to win another championship on the risk that people don't accept it in the, in the way he expected? I mean, I like that doesn't matter. You have to just do what you got to do. I get people hate me every single day. I still I still try my hardest to do what I do. And I, I think a few more people hate KD than me, probably at least like 20. But um, so like, but but, is, but it, well, wait, wait, wait. You try your hardest to do what you do, but there's you could do different things. You could have different priorities. Sometimes I listen to Kevin Durant and yeah, of course he wants to win. Like who doesn't want to win? But sometimes I think his priority is something different. Sometimes the way he talks, the way he approaches the game, I think if I were to describe his number one priority, uh, a better way to describe it than winning is he kind of wants to master basketball from an individual level, pick up every skill, be able to do everything on the court, shine as a bucket getter. I think that's the supreme skill to him and to a lot of people, a lot of basketball players, especially, uh, 
he just, you know, there were times where he's like, oh, I'm going to go pick up passing, or I'm going to go become a better rebounder, I'm going to kind of become a de facto center. He just picks up these different things and keeps adding to his game and and masters these skills. And obviously, that's great toward team winning. But I, I think the end goal might just be mastering individual skills more than team winning. Uh, you know, maybe that's right. I mean, it's, the, what you described also kind of sounds like what LeBron did throughout his career. And I don't think people really question LeBron's desire or priority to win. But I think you could say a, a reasonable thing to say about KD based on the way that we've seen him talk publicly is that he's someone who I think has a very holistic perspective on life. And mm-hmm. he isn't someone who's like robotically driven just to amass the most championships he can the way that like we looked at MJ. Um, right. right. And KD, KD very much reflects like the modern person in that way he's a he's a very well-rounded very fascinating deep person um and like you know Kyrie certainly tries to be that I think Kyrie is he just also just like steps in steps his foot into into dog crap on the side of the road constantly all the time because he bites off more than he should be chewing which is fine he wants to that's great it just you know also has does have a lot of collateral damage but so I just think just at the bottom line is like sure KD Whatever his priorities are, like clearly building this thing in Brooklyn with one of his close friends was a huge, important thing for him. But like, as much as I love my friends, as much as I love like the people that I've been in relationships with, like at a certain point, you can't compromise your own happiness and your entire life's journey just to do it with someone who doesn't want to also doesn't, you know, is not aligned with you on that journey. And I think at a certain point, you have to break up uh, if, if that person is holding you back. And I don't know what that what that point is for him. But if Kyrie can, you know, if Kyrie pushes it to that point, then I would imagine he would want to do that. But, you know, I hope it works out for them. Like they're, they're an exciting team. Kyrie, it sucks that Kyrie's reputation and career is the way it is because to his credit, he is like one of the most glorious players to watch that I've ever seen in my life. And he is a fascinating person and he, he's a great person in many ways. Um, He's also a frustrating person in many ways, <laughs> but like he is, he is one of the most memorable athletes of my lifetime, and especially since I've gotten uh, that I started covering the league. So I want to see him have success. I don't want it to be all drama, especially because like what makes drama great is that it's not just it's just not unhappiness; it's also happiness too, and it's the ups and downs of it. That's what makes this league so exciting. And there's been a lot of negative with him for a while, so you kind of want to see some positive just to balance it out. Do you think Sean Marks saying what he said publicly is going to help the situation, make the situation worse, have no effect on the situation? I couldn't tell whether from Marks this was like a strategic plan to try and motivate Kyrie to demand some accountability, maybe send a message to Kyrie, maybe send a message to the rest of the team. Or this was a guy who went through a really long year in Marks and dealt with a lot of problems and was just kind of expressing frustration by being fairly honest. Uh, I mean, no, his words were very clear. Like, it was very clear he wrote those with PR and, you know, probably ownership. And, you know, like that that was very clearly scripted. I thought and, was, and, but, I, but those are all people who are probably have been throughout this year frustrated with Kyrie Irving. Like they yeah, might like, have all proved it based on frustration yeah. rather than strategy, but it could also be both. Yeah. He, like, regardless, will a, it work? <laughs> there's a lot of emotion in it, but it was that was very clearly a very well thought out concerted effort. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it has to. Like you want to – you want to create some friction with Kyrie so that you can try to, I think like their best case is to kind of turn his, his allies in the locker room and organization against them a little bit to give them some leverage. If that's what they're looking for. Um, You know, I don't think, 
I don't think they're going to be like Kyrie, you know, everything's water under the bridge. So we're going to offer you a 70% guaranteed you know, contract. Like, I don't think that makes sense. They like, I think their approach to him has to be like, we want so badly to make this work. It's not been working. We need you to commit. This is all we can offer you right now. We need you to, because we, because we need, you haven't, you we need a show of faith or whatever. I, I don't, I haven't figured out how I would try to negotiate with Kyrie at that point. That probably would not work too well, but either way, um, and also the interesting thing is I saw him him and Naomi Osaka tweeting at each other about him joining her agency. I didn't even look up her agency is, but that sounds like they're making an announcement. So I don't know if his agent is changing uh, for this negotiation, but that was very well-timed right after the Mark's uh, comments. So this is going to be very interesting, that's for sure. Um, but I do like Mark's standing, like the organization standing its ground, especially because if he does leave, at least they could say, we stood our grounds. We like our culture is what matters. We built a culture before those guys came here. We lost that culture, and we want to maintain that culture. That's there's a better no sense ma- of the fans. There's no maintaining it. You're going to have to rebuild it, which is easier said than rebuild it. Sure, the the culture is gone. There's nothing to. Well, maintain. I heard Kenny Atkinson is uh, interviewing for coaching jobs. So <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine the Lakers hiring him as a win now team after the Nets just decided like no <laughs> win now coach. But who knows? Crazier things have happened. Uh, Zach Kleiman of the Memphis Grizzlies was just named NBA executive of the year. My Celtics hook on this one is Brad Stevens finished sixth. They heard a good amount of buzz that Brad Stevens should win this award. Maybe that's, um, says something about some East coast bias, some Boston bias in the media <laughs> who I listen to, but, but Are I think Boston people in the media, I, I know crazy. Um, I'm going to give the pushback against Brad Stevens. Number one, this is not the pushback. He did a, much better job than it appeared he did coming into the season. A lot of his moves have worked out so far very well. Uh, he's been impressive. Um, you grade his offseason positively and more positively than it looked at the beginning. But I don't really understand all the the bel- – I do understand it. It's incorrect. All the belief that Brad Stevens is this masterful <laughs> executive because look how good he got the Celtics – as if everybody is just ignoring the downside to these moves because they're going to come in later years. The yeah. Celtics gave up a first-round pick that became Elper and Shangun uh, to go from Kemba Walker to Al Horford. They gave up uh, another first-round pick and a top one 2028 uh, protected uh, pick swap to get Derek White. They took on a couple years of additional bad money to get Daniel Tice, and these are good and helpful players. And maybe it's worth it. And maybe it's not, but the idea that, oh, we can absolutely judge it right now because we're only getting the positive parts of the deal. These deals were always supposed to pay off immediately and present some risk in the future. Let's see what happens in the future a little bit before we fully grade these. But like I said, grading Stevens positively um, because the Robert Williams extension looks really good. Hiring Imidoka looks really good, although that's one where sometimes we get fooled by first-year coaches. Sometimes after that first season, it's not as shiny. I don't think that's going to happen with Idoka. I, I, I've been very impressed with him. I think there's a, a good base there. Um, I'm not so sold on Brad Stevens as a team president making these short-term moves. It's nice when the short-term moves, short-term moves work. It's better than when you make a short-term move and you don't even get the immediate boost. Hello, DeMontis, Sabonis, Sacramento Kings. Uh but oh, it's not God. the best of the best. So what do you think about Brad Stevens as a GM? And I also want to talk to you about Zach Kleiman winning this award. Um, somewhat surprising. I was very surprised by how much he won it by. So you can uh, you can pick either Stevens right. or Kleiman. Did, did like all the team executives just be like, let's pick a name out of a hat and just give it to that guy? He did. Um, nothing. It's an annual award. And he did practically nothing this year. He got. All that's what makes it so great that he won. And they're, well, they're recognizing the body of work. That's how it, that's how this award should work. That's it's how this award it. should work. 
Uh, I guess. Really, we should do executive of the year, but vote on two years later. Three years later, even. (laughs) Let's look back. Who was the executive of the year in 2019? We can look back. It's a weird award to give out annually uh, for one season, but we do give it out for one season, except for sometimes the voters who are the other executives decide it's a different season. And here's what's crazy to me. You can have the interpretation of, hey, we just want it to be body of work. My interpretation is, well, it's a flawed award. But the, the award is for this season, who did the best this season. That's why I had Arturis Kondishevis uh, from the Bulls as my pick. But this was crazy to me. Zach Kleiman got 18 of 30 first place votes. He got a majority of the votes. Do you know the last time an executive got a majority of the first place votes? Because this is an award where there's never any consensus. That's funny because I, I, I remember looking at the list and like pretty much every GM in the league got a vote. So I figured 18 out like, of 30 got a vote. The last yeah. time somebody got a majority of the first place votes was 2007. And it was Brian Colangelo at the Rafters, which is a little funny. Uh, oh, that's but hilarious. it's been 15 years since somebody got a majority of the first place votes. Usually like the guy who, who wins, it gets like nine out of 30 first place votes. So I, I don't really understand how this consensus built around Zach Kleiman, who I think has done a very good job, just not in the last year. I think they found a new slant is what it is, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that'll never get old. I'll never forget. I remember where I was when I read that article. It's one of the great articles in my lifetime. But so, um, I mean, yeah, I love the crime. climate award because this is, I think this is how it should be. You should be looking at what you should be looking at each year. Like the executive of the year award and the MVP award are the two awards that I think should be dramatically subjective and should be, completely eye of the beholder in their criteria, which is why like, I don't have any issue with the way the MVP award is done. Um, I think it'd be great if we could have a little bit more consensus, but like, it's really no, up to every- consensus. Nah. Yeah. But the point is, is well, it's just like, if you want to give an award, you want everybody to be using like the same frame of mind that they're analyzing it. But like, I remember it, it was a huge talking point here, when Jason Tatum was complaining about how he didn't make all NBA. And he was talking about like, should there be minimums for like, points per game and minutes played. It's like, no, absolutely not. No, that was ridiculous. That's, yeah. Yeah. Like he everybody's like, oh, he made such a good point. It's like, well, he made a good point that some of the voting's shitty, but like he didn't actually there isn't really a good solution for it. And like the players will be like, we should be voting on it. The players waste their votes all the time. Their votes are biased all the time. The media, as flawed as the media is, uh usually does a good job of like taking of like seriously contextualizing, especially since they cut down the voting rules to get rid of a ton of like like radio color commentators who like were kind of like throwing out ridiculous votes and stuff like that and kind of narrowed it down to people that are deeply entrenched in the league on a daily basis. So I think the voting generally has done a pretty good job. And so executive of the year, I think you're going to balance out. It's basically the executive of the year should go to like what, who's the, what ex, the executives work paying off in that moment mm. to create a great team for now based on what the objectives of that club are and then balancing out to a degree what kind of sacrifices they're making. So like Stevens, I think the important thing with the Stevens moves is that he hasn't made any dramatic long-term sacrifices. He's made some long-term sacrifices, but nothing dramatic. Um, at the time of the voting, the Al Horford trade for Shangun looked good. Uh, I think, I think it looked good. Now it, it looks, looks good. Yeah. The way he's playing, it's like a no brainer as good as Shangun is it's the mid, you know, mid, mid first round pick to get a guy who's been like, a fringe all-star for you in the put in the postseason right now is an absolute no-brainer. He has been phenomenal. They nailed that trade. You know, Shengun, Shengun's probably gonna win three MVP awards, but whatever. It's like you look good. <laughs> um, at least one. The white trade in the Tice trade, um, the Tice trade, I you know, I, I I was I because you know the, the team was putting out their spin of like 
it, it, like it's worth it to get the insurance. And yeah, I guess it is better to get Tice than some like you know forty ninth second you know second round pick for Dennis Schroeder. I I am on board with that. It was really the long term money concern, but credit to them. Rob Williams got hurt, and they desperately needed Damon Tice. So yeah, that one worked I, out too. That one worked out, and it's like his money. It doesn't seem like it's going to be too big of a hindrance for them, especially because next year it's not like they're trying to make some sort of huge trade necessarily. I think they kind of figured out like they don't need dramatic flexibility next year so they can take on the salary. So like that makes sense. We'll, um, see, we'll see what their appetite is for spending into the luxury tax and like if yeah, that costs them some other upgrade or what. That's true. But like whatever the other upgrade is, it's probably not, it's probably going to be a, 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 a smidge improvement over Tice or a decent improvement, but not enough that like it would, um, it would be a huge deal. Also, Rob yeah. Williams is just declared questionable for game six. So that's, that's an important development. Speaking of the Rob Williams extension, even with Rob Williams injury issues in the postseason being a massive, I would say a three alarm fire, not a five alarm fire, but it's a real, there's a real concern about his career over this issue that keeps popping up. Even so, the money they're paying him is still so cheap compared to his production that I don't think it really makes a difference. That's kind of that they pretty much knocked that extension out of the park. Um, and then what was the other thing? Oh, the Derek White trade. Whew, that's such a that's the hard one. It's really hard. Like Derek White has been has been really good for this team. Has pretty much fulfilled everything they want out of him. Um, but he is he's still the six man. They may not necessarily be closing with him in the future if Grant Williams continues to improve. Mm-hmm. So they'd be paying seventeen million to a guy that doesn't close games, which is pretty hard to justify. Um, and like the guy doesn't really shoot the ball well, and that's a it's a real problem. And Josh Richardson does, and Josh Richardson shot lights out in San Antonio, and he's become like the OG in San Antonio. So Richardson wasn't a great fit with the team this year, but he still is a pretty good player. And they gave up a first and that pick swap. Like it's a top one protected pick swap twenty five years from now. Like that that could be the second pick of the draft, very realistically. I remember at Stevens' press conference after the trade, that was what I asked him. And he was he is like I I kind of thought he would be like defensive and standoffish a little bit. He was like, yeah, that was a tough one. Uh, yeah. yeah, we took a we took a huge risk there. I'm like, yeah, you took a huge risk on a guy that cannot shoot the ball. And that's the thing with Derek White. It's like Derek White. I went through the tape and I went through the numbers with him. It was not a cannot shoot the ball situation. Like his shooting was not good in San Antonio, but there were some components to his game where he was decent. Basically, pull up threes above the break. He actually was not bad, um, and he just doesn't take any of those in Boston. He only takes the shots he's not good at in Boston, and so <laughs> it's been really bad. Um, but credit to him. He what makes Derek White so good is besides the fact that he's like he's really damn good at almost everything else in the game. Like it, especially on defense, like his defense is unbelievable. He's kind of like a less powerful Drew Holiday in a way. He's phenomenal defensively, but um, he he does find a way on offense to still be a contributor when he can't shoot. Like when game two, like a huge, huge reason why they won game two against Milwaukee was he missed every single shot and they stopped guarding him. So he started just attacking all the way till he got to Giannis and then kicking it back to the guy replacing behind him. But they were getting wide open threes with the shooter they wanted to after all. After all. So like Derek White is a really good problem solver. And I do think he definitely earns his money. But how much, you know, what, what is the ceiling on this team? If Tatum and Brown can't prove themselves to be truly elite superstars that can take over series the way Giannis is doing and the way that Tatum isn't, and Brown has been very good, but just not quite at that substantial level, can they then have a team around them where they don't have other knockdown shooters and creators? And, you know, Al Horford at some point, I assume, is going to age out of being good, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think White ha- has been good for uh, sort of changing the the tenor of the offense, uh, inducing more ball movement. Obviously, he's moving the ball, but just a, a, a general better flow. But he does have to Definitely. make s- some more shots um, than he has. One more executive topic I wanted to get your assessment on. Danny Ainge with the Jazz. There's our Celtics tie-in. Hey, yo. Uh, uh, having seen his track record, any sense of what he's going to do? The Jazz are in a... In a tough spot relatively i mean it's not the worst spot i i think a lot of teams would like to have donovan mitchell and rudy gobert they're two really good players it also seems they don't really like each other very much um neither one of them was good enough in the playoffs this year the team appears to be trending the wrong direction um what, what do you think uh danny Ainge would like to do there's, think- there's obviously pressure from ownership to uh jake fisher at bleach report had a good report of like a desire to have star a star multiple stars on the roster for the all-star game in utah but just in terms of team building and trying to get to the jazz to you know i don't know i don't know what the this is part of what i'm asking you i don't know if the goal is you know, it's an obvious it's a very obvious answer it's he's gonna it? trade he's gonna trade mitchell and rudy gobert to new orleans for every single one of their draft picks in gerald wallace <laughs> <laughs> and then he's going to draft uh, Victor Wembanyama and the name of the kid from 2025 class that I can't remember. But so I got to uh, look up the age differences between Rudy Gobert, Don Mitchell, and uh, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this might be a slightly different situation. Yeah. So okay. I, I mean, if I'm him, I would I would build around Don. Um, I, th- I think that you know he's Donovan Mitchell is a, a great offensive player who still, I think, has room to grow to be, like, the actual guy they really need him to be to win. And Rudy Gobert, just, like, defensively in the playoffs, teams have just found ways to scheme around him and take away his lethality as a defender, which isn't a real word. And so um, I I just feel like if they can get some substantial trade value for him, because this team clearly needs to be shaken up, that clearly the partnership between those two guys, you know, like, whatever they want to say about how it's overblown, like, it's not where it needs to be. And... I'm not sure you can win in the NBA when your second best player is not really able to score outside of like six feet, basically. And then on the other end, you can build a great system around him, but does he have the flexibility like another elite defensive star like Draymond Green has? He just, he hasn't shown quite the flexibility that he needs to be able to hold up in, or like be able to maintain his dominance in the playoffs even though I do think he maybe is a little maligned a little bit too much, but enough teams have been able to take him out of his game that or just like take him out of the middle of the paint that it um, like it's, it, it, he's just a little too game planable. And so I see why you want to move on from him, but it is certainly possible that they could stick with Mitchell and Gobert and completely rebuild everything around them. And maybe they do find something. I just think at this point, especially like just the only way to, to really get anything else of value is probably to move, Gobert or Mitchell. I just would rather keep Mitchell at that point. Lethalness. I do agree with you that uh, building around Mitchell is preferable, mostly because of age. I think Rudy Gobert is the better player right sure. now. Um, Mitchell has the higher upside and is younger uh, because of what because of what Mitchell can do as a scorer. That's special. That's like the supreme skill is self generated offense. I'm just not sure what you're going to get for Rudy Gobert in a trade. He is expensive. His value has sunk. Uh, I don't think trading low on him is ideal. Uh, I'm sure if you ask Donovan Mitchell bringing back Rudy Gobert and having him be in the locker room another year and on the court with him another year is not ideal. Um, so I, I don't know. There's not really great answers. Um, I tend toward a 
probably want to try and keep them together. If you get two players of that caliber, I'd like to make every effort to make it work rather than trading low on one. And like I said, because of age, because of upside, I wouldn't want to trade Donovan Mitchell. Um, But, you know, good luck to Danny figuring it out. Would you trade like Rudy Gobert for OG Ananobi or John Collins? For John Collins, no. Ananobi's interesting. Um, I mean, I think Rudy Gobert is a better player overall. I think Ananobi translates better for what he is to the playoffs. Ananobi's younger. He has the upside. He's on a uh, you know relatively team-friendly contract extension. That one's interesting. Um, I kind of doubt the Raptors would do that. But maybe, you know, that's, uh, you know, there could be something out there. It only they takes. want a center. They really want a center. And Pascal Siakam's way too good. They're not getting him. They're not getting right. Van Vliet. Van Vliet wouldn't make sense there anyway. Uh, I don't think they're getting Scotty Barnes. So, yeah, I mean, Ananobi seems like the one that would could go. And then, like, I know there's the Atlanta rumor where it's, like, DeAndre Hunter and Clint Capella. But, like, DeAndre Hunter, his health is way too much of an issue. Like, I don't think you could trade Rudy Gobert for him. I love Rudy Gobert's fit in Atlanta with Trey Young. Oh, yeah. Oh, because yeah. because a team with a really dreadful defensive guard uh, needs a, a good anchoring defensive center. Oh, maybe like the Jazz with Donovan Mitchell. I think they would miss Gobert more than they realize. Um, but there are person that's only on the court. Personality wise, eh, maybe not. Uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about is the NBA uh, has announced that they're going to name an additional Finals MVP. They're also going to start naming Conference Finals MVPs. One trophy in the west named after magic johnson one trophy in the east named after larry bird ding 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 there's our celtics tie-in do you love this as much as i do yeah well no i don't i think (laughs) because here's why the award should be going for the overall playoffs not for one individual series i was just having this conversation yesterday it's it's so frustrating when we give finals mvp to someone who was basically good for like three or four games in the finals while like LeBron was dominating the entire two month period or whatever. Steph, like Steph, who doesn't get finals MVP, but like was the reason that they even got there because he was so incredible, stuff like that. So I wish that they had changed it to, they would have made it a whole playoffs award and then the finals MVP if that's how they were going to do it. Honestly, yeah. the part I like the most about that news drop was that they have Oscar Robertson and Bob Cousy trophies now. Yes, those trophies were already given out. Those were the trophies for the Eastern Conference and Western Conference champions. Even though um, Oscar Robertson spent a bunch of his career in Cincinnati, uh, he's, <laughs> he's for the for the Western Conference, and then uh, played for Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah, um, but Cincinnati became the Kings. I guess is the logic there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Was, although Milwaukee might have been in the West at that point. Heck, I Cincinnati think- might have been in the West. I, I might just be. Okay, Cincinnati was in the East. I just looked this up, but I, I bet Milwaukee was in the West. They must have been, although I thought Kareem played against the Celtics in the third title or whatever. But, um, yeah, like the point is, is I'm in Milwaukee right now. I am not in the western part of the United States. I am, yeah, in, in 1971 you were. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yes, Milwaukee- and Clark kind of made, their, all, made it all the way to Oregon yet. Milwaukee was in the West. Okay. okay. So that I, I see how they got there. It's just a little weird with the Cincinnati thing. Um, the problem with an all-playoffs MVP is, like, how do you value somebody whose team went to the finals and played four series versus somebody who played three series versus maybe even somebody played two exceptional series? That, that to me, is just a really – impossible comparison to make but that's that's what we just talked about earlier with mvp criteria no uh, like, no no because that, MVP, that's the old like, every, 56 game debate the, the availability debate 
Right, but there's the available. But you had the opportunity to play as many games. Um, you would have had more opportunity if you won, and you were more. Valuable. If you won, but then what if you win? What if you win, and now you have to play a harder opponent, and you play worse, and so that lowers all your average. Like you could be great through two series, you could be through three series, but because you were so great through three series, now your team gets to go to the finals, and you run into a team that's too good, and you look bad in the finals. And now you're going to lose the award to somebody who wasn't quite as good as you over the first three series. Well, the I'll thing say, is, I oh, go, go, ahead, ahead. go ahead, go ahead. I'll say I think stats won't be that important in this award because what's different is people actually watch basketball during the playoffs, <laughs> so they're yeah. not slanted by box score stuff nearly as much. Uh, they'll still will be. That's how well. That's how we know that Jason Tatum is playing poorly and Giannis is playing great, even though their numbers aren't terribly far off. Yeah, that's true. Um, here's my solution, and I, I started doing this at. At, at NBC Sports last year, because I, I talked about, it. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. There should be a series MVP for every series. The conference finals Ooh. is a good start, but then we're not having to do these comparisons. And so you brought up the Steph Curry example. Okay, he didn't win Finals MVP, but he could have won three series MVPs before that. And we could debate how to stack that up, right? Like, how are we valuing a first round series MVP versus a second round series MVP? Uh, versus a conference finals MVP. What if you win two second round series MVPs? That's the debate we could be having instead of trying to figure out, well, how do we translate playing three series versus four versus two? You know what we could do? We could have a point system where like, you get one point for first yep. round, three points for second round, you know, and so and keep doubling and doubling in value. And then at the end, you tally it all up, and that's who the overall MVP of the postseason was. Sure. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't hate that. Um, you know, to me, if you're just giving out the. Uh, series mvps as you go you give people a chance to interpret it however they want um put those those types of valuations that'd be cool i i got no issue with that but i i don't know i look at the nba and this is what i keep coming back to during the regular season when games don't really matter that much matter probably less than they ever have they give out two players of the week in the regular season (laughs) you're telling me somebody didn't deserve some recognition for that celtics Nets series that was a sweep but that was a Hotly contested sweep between two really talented teams. One really good team, another team that was only talented, uh, but yeah. really talented. Uh, somebody does. Where, where is Grant Williams Award? He's still waiting for it. Grant Williams. Ooh. <laughs> <Was he? laughs> we could have that debate, and I think that'd was, be a lot of fun. He was he was very important, but he was no, he was not the MVP of that series. Like you're telling me, Giannis, if the Bucks close this out, maybe even if he doesn't, because I'm more open to giving it to somebody on a losing team than most people would be. Uh, you tell me Giannis doesn't deserve some formal recognition if the for what the Bucks are doing, what he's doing in this series. Why do we have to wait till the conference finals? Like you made this step to do it for another yeah. series. How can you not see we should be doing it for the first and second rounds too? Especially when everybody is talking about how this uh, this series feels like it's really the conference finals. That's the funny part of it. Yes, yes, that's a great point. Um, so somebody's going to step up against Miami or Philly. Uh, although who knows, right? One of those teams could win. I don't want to write that. Also, up. Could look real it, if the Bucks lost a series, I feel like Giannis would easily win MVP of the series anyway. No, it'd probably be Grant Williams or Al Horford. It'd probably be Al Horford um, <laughs> under the same way Andre Iguodala won it, where we all clearly know who the best player yeah. is. And somebody yeah. who keeps the very clearly best player from only being like the best by a lot instead of like a massive ton, that's the MVP. Actually, you know what it should be? It should be Grant and Horford together, like how the Hawks starting five from player <laughs> of the week at one time. Yeah. <laughs> It's like just their defensive effort on Giannis won MVP. 
So I, I, I'm really a believer in, in this playoff series MVP. This, is, this has been my idea. I've been pitching for a while. I, I think it'd be fantastic. And I think the NBA is trending toward doing it. And I, I do take it seriously. And I was so upset, though, when the Hawks starting five got named the player. Was it player of the month or player of the week? I think it was player of the month. Might have been player of the month, yeah. Yeah, and they named the whole starting five. I was so upset. Like, this is ridiculous. It's five guys. It's not what the award is. And I just had to take a deep breath and tell myself, like, do you want to be the person arguing about the sanctity of NBA Eastern Conference Player of the Month? Absolutely you do. Yeah, maybe. Dying on, dying on a hill is what makes life worth living. <laughs> you don't, don't you want to be that guy that when you tweet that stuff up, people are like, oh, here he goes again, and then they bring up other takes that you've had in the past that they've misinterpreted? Those, that's, that's, what being, that's what being a public figure is all about. <laughs> I, I think I am that guy. I, I think what you <laughs> people bring up. Oh, you are. You very much. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this pop up in group chats many times. Your takes. I, I'm not sure how much directed directly at me that was, but yeah, I felt it right. At, right. To, right oh, well, that, that that was more my experience that happens to me all the time. Um, yes. And, yes. You know, well, that's why I wasn't sure because it could have been either of us. It happens to me all the time for sure. That's why I don't I don't do takes very often because either my take was crap. Or my take was like dramatically embellished or misconstrued, and either and those are the ones that make me look way worse. Um, so you know, it's mostly stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that's why I'm glad you came on here. We could talk out our takes. We don't have to do it in whatever the character <laughs> limit uh, is. It, it you know it, it could get misconstrued on here, but it's less likely you had a chance to explain yeah, well, yourself. This, but this podcast was 280 minutes long, so we should be fine. Yes, yes, and I'm sure everybody listened to the end. Uh, Jared, thanks a ton for coming on. Yeah, whatever.